0: Would you turn with me again this morning to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 8? I'm going to read chapter 8, verse 27 through the first verse of uh, chapter 9. I hear God's holy and word this morning. Jesus went out along with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he questioned his disciples, saying to them, "Who do people say that I am?" They told him, saying, "John the Baptist," and others say Elijah, but others one of the prophets. And he continued by questioning them, "But who do you say that I am?" Peter answered and said to him, "You are the Christ." And he warned them not to tell. He warned them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, and be rejected by the elders, and the chief priests, and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. And he would stay in the matter plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning around and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. And summoned the crowd with his disciples, and said to them, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, and take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And Jesus was saying to them, Truly I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. The uh, National World War One Museum... Uh, is in Kansas City, Missouri. And there's uh, an exhibit at the museum uh, called Over by Christmas. Uh, when World War One was declared, a number of uh, European nations assumed it would be over quickly and easily uh, by Christmas even. Everyone would be home. Uh, one plaque describes the, the mood uh, as the soldiers prepared and left for battle. It says war was romantic. War was colorful flags and spiked helmets and flashing sabers. War was an adventure. Those called to arms would be heroes defending their homelands and way of life. And so uh, battalions left for World War One as if they were leaving on a, a brief and exciting uh, adventure in some cases. And of course World War One turned out horrifically different. Uh, It it dragged on, uh, famously dragged on for years, entrenched warfare and uh, more death than the world had ever seen before in war. Uh, The cost was dramatically higher than was anticipated in those uh, uh, foolish romantic celebrations that sent armies into it. I think much of American Christianity faces or exists in a similar narrative. There are millions of Christians, millions of people who profess to be Christians who do not understand the cost of discipleship, the suffering to which the Lord calls us, and the, the radical break with this world, with, with our lives. And so I want to challenge you this morning with that question, do you understand the cost of following Jesus? And I want to make a clear distinction at the outset. When we talk about salvation, salvation is by grace alone, right? It's a free gift. It costs nothing. We can give nothing in exchange for God's grace. Um, In one important but distinct sense, you cannot earn salvation. Um, There's nothing you can do to deserve it. There's nothing you can do to fall out of it if you are in Christ. It's through faith and repentance. It's by grace alone. And yet in another real and and distinct sense, because you have nothing to offer God, um, because you're totally depraved, you're on the wrong path without God's grace, it costs you everything. It costs you everything. That is, you give up everything that you were, everything that you are. You give yourself, your life entirely to Christ. You abandon your life to take up life in Christ. And that's, that's the demand of Christ. That's the focus of Christ in this passage here. Again, do you understand the cost of following Jesus? One reason this is a, a critical topic, I think, is that we all struggle with the pull of, of our culture away from that kind of living, away from that kind of uh, understanding of, of discipleship, the, a call to, to willing suffering and, and hardship. Materialism and hedonism and uh, other isms constantly urge us uh, to, to pursue this world, to pursue treasure and success and comfort and fun. Another reason, sadly, I think this is an a urgent, urgent need for understanding Jesus' call here, is that there are many who explicitly teach that those things are the very aim of the gospel, of Christianity. Christianity. Comfort and fun and prosperity and so on. There are many examples of that. I, I don't um, generally share names, but um, Joel Osteen remains a good example of this. His book, Years Ago, Your Best Life Now, gives a good gist of this kind of teaching. God wants you to be happy and wealthy and healthy. Uh, it's, it's what we call the prosperity gospel. Uh, by thinking positively and having the right kind of faith, you can achieve your dreams. God will give you um, what what you desire. But the problem with that, beyond you know, the fact that there are glorious promises in the gospel, um, spiritual promises, material promises, eternal promises, ultimate protection, and yet Jesus never promised anything outwardly in this life besides suffering. And so it's the opposite of the truth of God's word. It's This teaching is the opposite of the gospel and the call to discipleship. We could wish that that, that teaching was sort of a fringe movement, but the book I mentioned has sold eight million copies, um, many times New York Times bestseller, <laughs> The author leads the largest so-called church in our country. Uh, He won Most Influential Christian in 2006. He's been on Oprah and Larry King in 60 Minutes and many other things and millions of viewers on cable TV um, daily, probably your neighbors and and friends. Years ago, A.W. Tozer noted this emerging self-serving version of the gospel. Um, And the the irony of still using the language of the gospel, especially like the language of the cross. He writes, the new cross does not slay the sinner, it just redirects him. It gears him into a simply cleaner and jollier way of living and saves his self-respect. To the self-assertive, it says, come and assert yourself for Christ. To the egotist, it says, come and do your boasting in the Lord. To the thrill-seeker, it says, come and enjoy the thrill of the abundant Christian life. The idea behind this kind of thing, he writes, may be sincere, but its sincerity does not save it from being false. It misses completely the whole meaning of the cross. The cross is a symbol of death. It stands for the abrupt, violent end of a person. So do you understand the cost of following Jesus, this call to deny yourself, to take up your cross, and and to lose your life? Consider this passage in in two, uh, two main points this morning, focusing mainly on the second, but confessing the complete and true Christ, and then following the true Christ. So looking at the beginning of what we read this morning, Jesus is asking his disciples this question about, what are people saying about me? Who do they say I am? And the, the consensus response was, that some pretty great person, right? Prophets, um, something like that. But his main question, verse 29, to them is, but who do you say that I am? And this elicits uh, Peter's Response: so The disciples have been with Jesus for a long time now, learning from him, his, his teaching, observing his, his power and his compassion, uh, his power over nature, over Satan, demons, over um, sickness and even death, and his forgiving sins. And so Peter's famous confession, you are the Christ. Uh, Christ is the Greek transliteration of the Hebrew Messiah, you are the Messiah, the, the Anointed One, is what that word means. And in, in the Old Testament, prophets and priests and kings were anointed by God for His purposes. But they all anticipated the, the greatest prophet, the highest priest, the the eternal, all-powerful King, uh, the Anointed One, the Messiah one day, and this is who Peter is confessing, finally, that Jesus is, but Jesus' response then to that is is maybe puzzling. Verse 30, he warned them to tell no one about him. Jesus knew that the disciples, as, as will quickly be revealed, Jesus knew the disciples didn't fully understand what it meant for him to be this, the Messiah. They didn't understand what, what kind of a Messiah he was, if you will. Um, They weren't ready to go out and teach other people that Jesus was the Messiah and what that meant. Remember the Jewish expectations generally for the Christ was that he would be a powerful political ruler and gather an army and defeat the Romans and restore the glory and prosperity of Israel uh, here and now. And so Jesus immediately begins to correct that view of what his mission was. Verse 31. He began to teach them the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected uh, and be killed. And he was stating the matter plainly, it says. I think it's hard to understand, hard for us to understand how hard that was to understand for the disciples. We know the Gospels, well, right? we know the Gospels focus on on Jesus' death and resurrection. Um, But we need to understand What a shock it was to the disciples, and we see, after this point, how slow they are to to get it, how slow they are to receive Jesus' teaching that he's to suffer and die, and and here Peter immediately rebukes Jesus, says, that's crazy, you don't understand what what the Christ is, Jesus. That's maybe one of the most shocking verses in the Gospels, Peter rebukes Jesus, And then Jesus responds with what is certainly his sharpest rebuke of the disciples in the Gospels, in verse 33, where he says, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. Suffering was so central to Jesus' mission that to deny it or to oppose it was to side with Satan, the kingdom of Satan, against the kingdom of God. The disciples needed to understand that, that they first needed not a, a political champion, but a sacrifice for their sin to reconcile them to God. Someone who would suffer on their, their behalf, who would break the power and the guilt of Satan, of sin, uh, even of death. That reminds us, that teaches us of the importance of following, of confessing, of knowing the complete Christ. Jesus, as he's presented to us in the scriptures, all that he is. The biblical picture of God and Jesus, it, it's a natural tendency for all of us as humans to do what, what Peter did or what, what the um, prosperity gospel movement did. Or It's a tendency for all of us to, to chop up and, and decide what we think Jesus is, who he is, or what he should do. Uh, Even conservative, confessional Christians, um, like us, generally have protections against doing that kind of thing. This is our sinful tendency, to recreate God in our image. Uh, We like the Jesus of victory and love and forgiveness and comfort, and rightly so, but maybe not the one who rides on a horse soaked in, in blood as the judge of the world, as Revelation pictures him, or the calls to repentance or the warnings of hell or the calls to die to self. The danger in not confessing the complete Christ is that what we understand God to be like, what we understand Jesus to be like informs entirely our our faith in him and our, our obedience to him, our worship of him. So are you confessing the complete Christ? That, that leads Jesus into what it means then to follow the complete Christ. The, the life of a disciple is to reflect a pattern of Jesus' life and so he expresses this in, in three roughly synonymous ways here in this passage. Uh, a disciple is to deny himself, take up his cross and lose his life. And, and Jesus says in verse 34, in introducing this, If anyone would come after me, he must. That is this, this is the only way. This is what a disciple is. There isn't a different kind of disciple than this. If anyone... so Let's look at each of these um, uh, briefly in, in turn. If anyone, verse 34, wishes to come after me, he must deny himself. And I would suggest that what's described here by self-denial is, is really simply what's involved in faith and repentance. Um, faith and repentance are the means by which you receive the free gift of salvation. you are forgiven and adopted by God. That repentance is turning away from sin, turning away from every inclination and motivation that you had as a sinner and being led by God, following His will. Refusing to respond to your will and responding to the will of God. Denying yourself. Faith, in in part at least, is faith that only God can save. Only God can give purpose for your life. He is faithful when, when you are not. Understand that your relationship with God is not about His just helping you with your problems. It's not simply about His saving you from something outside of yourself that would harm you but primarily saving you from yourself from your your sinful selfishness which is your, your biggest problem that has separated you from from God and his his love that you would stop living for yourself and live for your gracious creator jesus invitation To follow him, his invitation to to salvation, is not an invitation to to follow your dreams or listen to your heart or do what feels right. But it's an invitation to follow and serve your Savior in all things at the expense of your desires, at the expense of your feelings, for your good. But what does self-denial look like? We could... Multiply many, many examples, but self denial means rejecting temptation in every case and choosing righteousness. Self denial means not being controlled by your emotions. Self denial means not uh, protecting your time and space so much, but, but putting them sacrificially at the service of others first. Self-denial is loving your spouse when you feel you've been treated unfairly or or not loved well, or answering the call of a friend in need when it's inconvenience. Self-denial means giving to the church, to the body of Christ, despite all that you could do with time or money or whatever resources. Self-denial means coming home at at the end of a long and exhausting day and cheerfully serving your family, refusing to be harsh or lazy or... Short. Self denial is not justifying anger or discontentment over the circumstances God has allowed in your life. We could, of course, multiply examples. Gee, the second exhortation is even stronger. Take up your cross. Recall Jesus had to carry his cross before his crucifixion. That was uh, the normal pattern for criminals to be crucified, to have to carry their cross to the place of crucifixion. It was a a public, humiliating symbol of their subjection to the state. Um, uh, Ultimately, not a symbol of, of, of a burden, of being burdened, but of going to die. Jesus' call is to lay down your life. Uh, to live a new life to him, with him. Uh, Paul put this memorably and, and uh, so well in Galatians 2, verse 20, where he says, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live, in the flesh I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. take up your cross. It's, it's a call, in a sense, daily to wake up dead. Each day. Dead to yourself, dead to this world as, as you're controlling love and to make your life, uh, dead, dead to making your life about comfort and pleasure and fun and health. You know, the, this, this language Jesus used here has become... Uh, common in our pop culture, uh, speak, people speak about my cross to bear, uh, bearing your cross. Um, often used in, in a really trite and, and softened way. People speak of an annoying coworker or a you know, craving for chocolate or something that you wish you didn't have. That's my, I guess that's my cross to bear, right? As if, as if bearing a cross was just one occasional annoying thing you have to put up with. Right? Of course, that's not how Jesus uses the, the term. Uh, Joni Erickson Tata is a quadriplegic and and has suffered, I think, far beyond uh, all of us. In her book, Sent to Serve, she, she explains how she's learned the difference between everyday struggles and taking up your cross. She writes, Our affliction becomes that which pushes and shoves us down the road to the cross. And that's what it means to become like him in his death, quoting Paul there. Don't think the cross, she writes, is simply the wheelchair or an irritating job or an irksome mother-in-law. The cross is the place where you die to sin and live to God. Another, I'm using more than usual, but another extended quote is this Point is made powerfully, maybe most famously, by Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who's a theologian who was hanged by the Nazis in in 1945. In his book, The Cost of Discipleship, he writes, The cross is laid on every Christian. The first Christ-suffering which every man must experience is the call to abandon the attachments of this world. It is that dying of the old man which is the result of his encounter with Christ. As we embark on discipleship, we surrender ourselves to Christ in union with his death. We give our lives to death. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. The the version of discipleship that we might tend toward in our sin. The version of discipleship from prosperity theology to word of faith theology that denies suffering and aims for glory in this life now stands in the way of the gospel like Satan, like, like Peter did. Even uh, thankfully temporarily in, in Peter's case. Thirdly, Jesus called to lose your life. Verse 35, he says, For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the Gospels will save it. Our Salvation comes with the assurance that walking with God and, and learning holiness from the hard circumstances that he uses to teach us uh, is far better than living for ourselves. That there's, in fact, far more um, joy in, in the promises of God than in the temporary pleasures of this world, the things that might uh, put in his place. So the call is to lose your life, to, to let go of your agenda, to let go of your goals, your self-centered living. And that's not at all to say that there are not many good gifts of God in this world, That in, enjoying his creation and fellowship and there aren't many things for fun and pleasure, God created these things for us and us for them. Our, our hope is for a time when Christ returns that we will enjoy this world to the full uh, as God intended. There will be a time when, when self-denial will come to an end. But in this fallen world in which our, our selfishness and our tendency to rebellion threatens to, to drag all of us, uh, under the judgment of God nothing is worth missing out on God's kingdom now, that's the point Jesus is making no matter how painful or costly I and mean, he gives the illustration verse 36 for what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul what will a man give in exchange for his soul just imagine gaining the whole world if you have the whole world that you are uh, uh, um, and your control. You, you controlled all the resources of the entire world and yet if you died, if you lost your soul if it was only very temporary, what, what would be the point? Jesus is arguing from the greater to the lesser. If, if that would not be worth it, to have control of the entire world's resources uh, you know, Jeff Bezos times a million Uh, that wouldn't even be worth it at all, how much less is it to to pursue and put in the way of the kingdom of God all the lesser things that we might pursue in this life? The call is to give up everything, in a sense, to gain everything in Jesus. Have you done that? Do you accept, do you understand the cost of discipleship? Jesus in Luke 14, this is actually the, uh, I, um, more than a year ago now, I, I preached in Luke 14 when I, when I candidated here uh, in, that, in that June. This passage that does not have a parallel in Mark where Jesus um, is talking about the cost of discipleship and asks, Which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? So therefore, he concludes, if any one of you, uh, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has, cannot be my disciple. Coming to Christ means giving up everything. Not necessarily a literal sense of selling everything and, and sitting on a pile of dirt with nothing, but in submitting that all you, all you are and all you do uh, to his direction and will. Uh, in In obedience and contentment, a true disciple is willing to lose everything, uh, to gain Jesus. There's nothing not worth losing uh, to belong to him and to know his reward. Most of you are familiar with our um, mission in uh, in India. Um, the The pastor there is uh, Venki his wife, Shami, and uh, I came from the presbytery that that sent them um, to that mission work a number of years ago, and they were at our uh, presbytery a number of years ago, sharing um, a story about a a family they knew in a small village in uh, northern India where the gospel had been preached, and a number of families had um, come to the point of of receiving it, of abandoning Hinduism and Uh, much of their culture with it and, and sadly, losing friends and family and and status uh, along with that and professing faith in Jesus. And uh, they told of how local tribal leaders learned about this and they came to the village and demanded that these families and individuals renounce this profession, return to to Hinduism. And sadly, some did. One, One family of three would not and they described how the, the daughter was made to watch her parents stand in, in swamp in freezing temperatures all through the night, with the intention to kill them. And they, in the morning, they had not died yet, and so the parents were beaten to death after refusing again to renounce their faith in Christ. "Have you taken up your cross and lost your life such that it cannot be taken from you?" It's already died and raised forever with Christ. What, what a contrast that is with with the easy believism all around us. How many people, maybe some of you, think that discipleship is a matter of coming forward or just praying a prayer or uh, not swearing or going to church or God helping you with your problems or achieving your goals? How many of you have taken up your cross would you willingly freeze to death? I, and I don't ask that question as if it's an easy one for me or, or any of us to answer. Would we willingly freeze to death rather than deny Christ? Because it's not worth comparing with the glory that we revealed when He returns and forever. That's and not likely the end to which Christ calls most of you given our circumstances, but it is the life-losing commitment that Christ calls all of his disciples to, the willingness, the level of, of loyalty that defines discipleship. Phil Reichen offers some good challenges and reflection in asking, is this the kind of life you're leading? Are you following Jesus all the way? If so, it should be easy to identify the things you're giving up for the gospel and the rejection you're suffering for the cause of Christ. If we keep the terms of Christian discipleship, inevitably we will suffer. We are bound to hear cynical remarks from our neighbors or face ethical dilemmas at work. We're bound to have people criticize our uncompromising commitment to sexual purity or walk away from us because they do not want to hear us give the gospel we're bound to have occasional pangs of regret over things that we're giving up for the gospel as we put more of our time and money at God's disposal so that's the, the call to discipleship here in this passage deny yourself, take up your cross, lose your life but Jesus ends I think with an encouragement here I want you to look finally at at verse 38. Um, Jesus speaks of coming again in in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Um, And then in verse 1 of the next chapter, which is really the end of this passage, Jesus says, Truly I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here, will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. So Jesus speaks of, of glory to come, resurrection, eternal life with Christ, a, a perfect eternal universe. We, we think of all of these things, no more sin and, and pain and shame. But Jesus is not here speaking simply of, of the end, of, of his return, of something that's future. He says very specifically to the crowd that's gathered around him that many of them will, will see, will witness some of this in their lifetime. They will witness the power of his kingdom and his glory. In, in the Gospels, coming in glory, Jesus' coming in glory, is often um, inclusive of his resurrection and his ascension and his, his ruling and reigning on the throne defending his Holy Spirit and ruling and defending his people, driving back the kingdom of Satan. That's his coming in glory. Jesus promised that people standing there would see before they died, and they did. And and you too, this morning, you continue to witness the reign of Jesus over this world. And we can see it through through church history in the last 2,000 years. And and so the the final encouragement here is to to take courage now, Uh, in spite of the the reality of suffering, the call to suffering in the Gospels. You you can see the glory and the reign of Christ now. Uh, Know that your suffering is not in vain. Self-denial is incredibly hard. Uh, In fact, we should say it's impossible. But Christ is risen and reigning, and, and He gives you the strength to be like Him in His suffering, to learn obedience and uh, dependence and trust on the Father as He did in this life. Ask that He would increasingly show you your, your sin, your need for Him, that He would strengthen you with the will and the love for God to live a life of self-denial and cross-bearing. Study the, the perfect life of Jesus to see what that looks like. Your suffering, your self-denial, your cross-bearing are making you more like Jesus. They're they're teaching you to rest in the grace of Christ and to hope in him, hope in something more than than yourself um, and this world. So may God strengthen you for cross-bearing discipleship. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you again today for your word, and even for this a very difficult call to discipleship, uh, to wrestle with. There are some calls and promises of Jesus that uh, we are eager to hear and to accept, and others uh, like this that are very hard uh, that we would maybe rather not hear uh, or consider or compare to our lives, and yet. We acknowledge this to be your word and your will and the nature of true discipleship uh, that reflects uh, the life and the obedience and the faith and trust of Jesus uh, in you. So we pray that you would help us to be more like him in that, um, to know the gospel and to know him uh, more deeply, that we would willingly follow him in in these ways. Uh, We pray In his name and for his sake. Amen.